The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Working our way through the book of Acts. And um, it wasn't too long ago, only weeks ago, not for us, but, but for Peter, that he said, I don't know him. I'm not one of them. I don't know what you're talking about. And now after Pentecost, he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. This Jesus whom you crucified. And after healing the man who was lame from birth, he said, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And in chapter 4, arrested, questioned before the authorities, Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No one else. Christ alone. And our culture replies, alone? How bigoted, how arrogant, how intolerant is that? Peter knew the truth. He was, he was changed. He was bold. Bold like another man. 1,500 years later. And apparently tomorrow, as um, Elder Steve Murphy pointed out, today is Reformation Sunday. Tomorrow is Reformation Day. 505 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, an obscure Augustinian monk nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. An act that really changed the world forever. At the center of the Reformation is the gospel and that we are saved in Christ alone. Luther didn't know the impact that he would have posting something on the door. It was somewhat typical. It's what they wanted, what they would do if they wanted to bring something to their attention for debate, even discussion. He had no intention of splitting the church. He loved the church. He was concerned over some of its practices, having to do with relics and penance and the purchasing of indulgences, which was a a practice that people were told would lessen the time of their dead loved ones in purgatory. According to Luther, the church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the meaning of Reformation Day. And Luther declared it because it seemed the church had lost its sight of the gospel and replaced it with tradition. So instead of Christ alone, it it had become Christ plus Jesus plus a system of works that tried to earn God's favor. Stephen Nichols describes Reformation Day as the day the light of the gospel broke forth out of darkness. The day that led to Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and many other reformers helping the church find its way back to God's word. 
as the only supreme authority for faith and life. It, it was the day that led the church back to the glorious doctrines of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It, it kindled the fires of missionary endeavors. It led to hymn writing and congregational singing, and it led to the centrality of the sermon and preaching for the people of God. It's the day that reminds us of our duty, our obligation to keep the light of the gospel at the center of all we do. What Peter and Martin Luther and the various reformers have in common is their boldness to speak the truth, even if it costs them their lives. Rather than remain silent for the sake of false peace, they spoke the truth about Jesus, that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No one else. That little word alone is the difference between being Catholic or a Protestant. Are we saved by grace? Or is it grace alone? Is it God's gift plus something we do? Grace plus baptism, grace plus confession, grace plus our works of righteousness. How about faith? Are we saved through faith or is it, is it faith alone? Is it faith in Christ or Christ alone? Who has the final authority over such questions? The church and its leaders, popular opinion, tradition, or is it scripture alone? And why is this important? The last of the Reformation solas tells us salvation is for the glory of God alone. These are bold statements, and they're the truth of the gospel. Our battles today, they're different. But they really come back to this little word alone. Will we be bold is the question. Like Peter like the many martyrs throughout church history, like Luther and the Reformers, will we be bold for the sake of the gospel? Let's pray together. Lord, we see this remarkable transformation in Peter and know that it's the work of the Holy Spirit. His boldness for the truth is the result of of being filled with your spirit. And we ask for the same equipping for the sake of the gospel. Lord, help us to see that we can never compromise when it comes to the message of your salvation, a message promised in your word, a message accomplished by Jesus at the cross and, and applied to us by your spirit. It is grace alone that leads to life and our hope for eternity. So, Lord, please strengthen our faith. Help us to see the importance of such gospel clarity. We pray for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 4, we'll read verses 1 through 12. And as they were speaking to the people, the the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them 
greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is God's word. You may be seated. Wow. Yes, this is God's word. A message that got Peter and John thrown into jail and questioned before a large, intimidating group. And I hope we would respond with such bold conviction. We live in a nation once described as Christian and people, well, they may like you, you're nice, but how will they feel about you if they realize what you believe? And that may sound strange, but I hope you're not a, this, this statement, this next statement may sound strange, I should say, but I hope you are not a typical evangelical. I hope you're not a typical evangelical. Does that sound strange to you? Let me tell you why I say that. In a recent poll, evangelicals were asked, do you agree or disagree with the statement, this statement, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam? Asked to evangelical Christians. 56% said, yes, we agree. I hope you're not typical evangelicals. I hope you know to disagree with this. That God does not accept Islam. He does not accept Judaism. Like Martin Luther, these early Christians in Acts didn't intend to split up God's people. They only realized the truth. They thought of themselves, these early Christians thought of themselves as authentic Jews. This is their heritage. They were authentic Jews, following Jesus, their promised Messiah. But the result is that the religion of Judaism is a structure without a cornerstone. And so it crumbles, it falls, and is not accepted by God. 
And this is not an anti-Semitic message. It's Peter's message. Peter's a Jew. It's a message of love because it's a message that tells the truth to them. Peter's consistent message is that they delivered over and denied an innocent man, the holy and righteous one, asking for a murderer to be released instead. That they killed the author of life, the very one that God raised from the dead and appeared to hundreds of people over the next 40 days before he ascended to glory. This same Jesus is the one who healed the lame man that they're all staring at in wonder. Peter gives them this this terrible news of what they've done. That their, their own scriptures, the Old Testament, spoke of Jesus, the one they've rejected. With boldness, Peter says, God knew this would happen. In fact, he ordained for this to happen. He told you about it in the servant songs of Isaiah. Jesus, the suffering servant whom God glorified. And we're witnesses to this. This is not arrogance. It's love. It's love to tell a person the reality and enormity of their guilt. So they can see how incredibly wonderful is the good news of God's grace. Think of it this way. If you you received a message that someone wants to pay off all of your financial debts. It's not the government that just adds taxes onto everyone else. This is a real gift. Someone wants to pay all of your financial debts. Everything that you owe. Is it good news if you don't actually owe anything? If your house and car are bought and paid for, free and clear? Is it good news if you have lots of savings, a great retirement plan, ton of income, no debt whatsoever? Is that good news? No. It's not good news. It's just a, it's just a kind offer. It's a, it's a nice proposal. It's... Well, it's just that if you don't need it. Spiritually speaking, people tend to think that they're good. That they don't owe God anything. But in reality, they're in debt. More than they could ever pay in a million lifetimes. People are blind to this spiritual debt and they need to know it. They think there's a lot of righteousness in the bank. But in reality, what they actually have is it's just all stolen. So in order to understand the massively good news of the gospel, people first need to realize that they're not comfortably set. That they're actually headed to court and on their way to prison. So a part of sharing the gospel, the good news involves opening people's eyes to the reality of their bad and really terrible situation. No, none of this belongs to you. You owe a debt of your very life, a terrible debt too great to 
satisfy, and this is why hell is eternal. It can never be satisfied. Rejecting Jesus is what Peter's audience had done, and rejecting Jesus is what every unbeliever does. It's a terrible realization. But Peter doesn't leave them there. He gives them the good news of forgiveness, of being made right with God. God is actually, he's actually that loving, that merciful, that kind. What must I do, Peter is asked. Peter says, repent, repent, turn back to God. If you acknowledge your guilt, your great sin, and turn away from it and turn to God who is gracious to save you through faith in Jesus, your debt is forever paid. Not religion, not Muhammad, as 56% of the evangelicals apparently believe. No, Jesus alone. He's the one who healed this lame man. He's the only healer of any and every human soul. These 56% probably don't want to offend anyone, I imagine. But it's just offensive to God. It's another denial of Jesus that's just as wicked as the Jews who cried out, crucify him. In the minds of many evangelicals, Um, Have you noticed this? In the minds of many evangelicals, Judaism seems like close, like a sister religion, like we have this connection. Close because, well, their scriptures are part of ours, but it's not close. It's not close because Judaism rejects Jesus. Our Jewish friends need Jesus. He alone is able to save. Concerning an earlier version of this poll, R.C. Sproul stated, the vast majority of people who call themselves evangelical Christians in our society do not embrace a Christian worldview. That is, they have a religious inclination toward the person of Jesus, but their thinking is not informed by what Jesus or the apostles actually taught Rather, their thinking and behavior have been saturated in the tenets of secularism. And what is the most basic tenet of our secular culture? Religious tolerance. Religious tolerance. Now, there's a right way to think about tolerance. Our country is based on the principle that people of all religions... Creeds, backgrounds are welcome and should have freedom of religious expression. And I say amen. Amen to tolerating people of different religions in the sense that they have the legal right and freedom under the law of the land to worship idols and false gods. Sad, but they have the freedom to do so. That's what... That's what Living in a free country means. In the name of freedom, our laws allow for this. They're not designed to punish this. As long as their worship doesn't steal someone's goat for a sacrifice and break the law or something. 
as long as their worship abides by the laws of our society, this is a free country, meaning we should be tolerant. But today, our secular society assumes and demands a different kind of tolerance. Not simply saying that that all religions are, are equally tolerated under the law, but insisting that all religions are equally valid. And of course, the only invalid belief would be yours. The one that uses that little word, alone. If we know anything about the nature of God from the scriptures, that should be this. God hates all religions. He hates all religions invented by people. Read Romans 1 and see that at the heart of sinful humanity, there is this exchange of the truth for a lie, a suppression of the truth for a lie, suppressing what God has revealed to us and trading it for man's own inventions. Think of the incredible insult to a holy God who stoops to graciously send his son to us, to suffer and die for us. And then for people to say, eh, I'd rather worship, I'd rather give someone else the glory. When we read this account in Acts 4, we need to remember that it's, you know, it's only been a few weeks since this same, this same group of Jewish leaders, they held another hearing for Jesus. And they thought that they'd rid themselves of him. But now they're annoyed. They're annoyed because the same things Jesus did are occurring with his apostles. People followed after Jesus because of the the miraculous signs and wonders, and now it's even bigger. Now there's been the miracle of Pentecost. Now there's this man that everyone knows was crippled from birth for 40 years. He's jumping around praising God. And Peter isn't afraid. He's not denying Jesus. And not only is he not denying him, he's convincing people to follow Jesus. And following Jesus means persecution. So this is not some fad. It stands out all the more that something serious is going on here. Jesus is a threat to their power, and now Peter is. And now there's 5,000 followers. Incredible. And we get the sense of, of... urgent concern as Luke describes a variety. There's a bunch of people here in our text that we read. There's a variety of people gathered to oppose Peter and John. The priests, the captain of the temple who is the second most powerful man, the Sadducees who are the, the main players, the upper class, the political elite, The Sadducees who thought of themselves as disciples of Moses. And so anything other than the Pentateuch, that's the the first five books of the Bible, well, they would deny. In particular, they were known to deny life after death in any form, thinking our souls died with our bodies. So all the more offensive, all the more of a threat. What What a great threat it is preaching a resurrected Messiah. 
with a growing number of followers. Verse 1 tells us that they came upon them. And the Greek gives a sense of suddenness. That they didn't just mosey on up from the crowd to have a little chat with them. But that they, they rushed them. They came upon them suddenly and they took them away. It says in verse 2 that they were greatly annoyed. You think about it, they could have just kicked them out of the temple grounds, warned them. They could have just picked them up the next morning if they wanted to question them. But they were annoyed. So they rounded them up. They, verse 3 tells us they actually put them in custody, throwing them in jail overnight. They didn't have to do that. It's obviously a show of intimidation. And with this in mind, I think Luke shows a little bit of irony with verse 4. But, he says, but many of those who heard believed. And now there are around 5,000. You think you have power? Here's what happened. Thousands more believed. What we see in this show of intimidation is the same message that you've read all throughout your Bibles. Story after story of the might of man, the many horses and chariots, the giant warrior Goliath, the might of Egypt, the raging of nations, the people plotting in vain. Story after story of God intentionally showing his infinitely superior might by using someone like Moses who doesn't like to speak in front of people or Gideon's army of 300 taking on 130,000 Midianites with what? Trumpets and jars. Small and weak. This is how God works because it's for his glory alone. Here's how Paul put it. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Peter and John And the rest of the disciples, who are they? They're a bunch of uneducated nobodies. Martin Luther, who's he? He's a lowly monk taking on Rome and the Pope. You're a small voice in a cancel culture with big tech and the power of media. Who are you? Our universities have indoctrinated millions of students over decades with untrue and terrible arguments against Christianity. Who are you to make a difference? Consider your calling. 
You're just like the people God has always used. So that all the boasting, all the glory belongs to the Lord. And here's where the real power is found. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. There's the difference right there. Between the old Peter and the new. The cowardly Peter and the bold Peter. And he must have had, you have to imagine, standing before this intimidating group, he must have had this confident peace wash over him as he remembered Jesus saying this, be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you're to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. It's exactly as Jesus said. Peter gave witness of the gospel to the people. And now he's bearing witness to the rulers. And the Holy Spirit spoke. Peter's a nobody. Presenting what to them appear to be a nobody Messiah. And I think that's why he describes Jesus as not simply Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The common reaction to Nazareth is Nazareth? That's a hick town. Anything good come from Nazareth? Oh, but there's something very good standing right there in their midst, right there with Peter and John as they answer the rulers who ask, by what power did you do this? The man everyone knows suffered 40 years. He's standing there right beside them. And you would hope that they'd feel some sense of shame as this man stood in their presence as living evidence to the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Peter boldly declares, it's by Christ alone. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name, by the authority of the living Christ, The Messiah that that you crucified, the one God raised from the dead by Christ and Christ alone, this man is standing before you. But look at the next verse, verse 11. Once again, Peter gives them their own history from their own scriptures, pointing out that this Jesus is the cornerstone mentioned in Psalm 118. But notice that Peter gives a little interpretation to this psalm. He fills in the blanks. He adds one little word, you. Psalm 118 reads, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. But Peter says it this way in verse 11. This Jesus is the stone 
that was rejected by you. You're the builders. The perfect stone. The one that holds the adjoining walls and therefore the entire structure together. And you, builders, rejected this stone. And the structure you're left with that you think God accepts crumbles. In fact, in AD 70, God made it really clear to them. He made it really clear as their temple was forever destroyed. While the true temple, the church, which is made up of living stones, you and me, is accepted by God because it is held firmly together by the cornerstone of Christ. The one who holds us all together. That will never fall. What are the ingredients that we see in Peter's presentation of the gospel? Should be the same when we share the gospel. Repent and believe. See your guilt. Know the bad news. See your guilt. Turn from it. Turn to the only savior of the world, Jesus. This is the good news. And Satan hates it. He attacked. He tried to to destroy the promised seed of the woman ever since the garden. He bruised the heel of Jesus thinking he'd defeated him at the cross. But Jesus rose victorious and crushed Satan. And Satan still seeks to do his damage. And we see this throughout the ongoing persecutions of those who shared the good news. But Jesus promised that he would build his church. That the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Acts shows us the beginning of the church building. And it continues to our day. Satan's schemes remain for now. But we know the story, don't we? Jesus wins. Jesus won and Jesus wins. I want to close with something I've shared before, but it's just the, it's the perfect example of the world's animosity to Peter's closing statement in verse 12. That there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name but Christ alone. The world The world hates this. And R.C. Sproul's story not only shows this, but I I think his response, I don't know if I read the entire response before, but his response is something that I think we should use. That I would encourage you to examine, think about, how can I share in the same way? I'm going to send it, I'm going to email it to you later. Study it. It's such a good response to the typical question of our culture today. So here's what Dr. Sproul wrote. One of my college professors had been, this is when he's young, um, one of my college professors had been a war correspondent. And she was openly hostile against Christianity. She knew I was a Christian. And one day in the middle of class, she said to me, Mr. Sproul, Do you think that Jesus is the only way to God? Everyone turned and looked at me. They couldn't wait to hear how I would answer. And I thought, what do I do now? 
If I say no, I don't believe that he's the only way, I will publicly deny him. If I say yes, he is the only way, then the wrath of the teacher is likely to descend upon me and I'll know the scorn of my classmates. So cleverly, I answered with my hand in front of my mouth, yes. I mumbled my reply, hardly like Luther at the Diet of Worms. She said, speak up. I didn't hear what you said. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? I had to face the music. I said, yes, ma'am, I do. She looked at me and replied, that is the most bigoted, outrageous, narrow-minded, arrogant statement I've ever heard in my life. I sank into my chair in in an attempt to find protection. She finished the class, and as we were leaving, she stood at the door. She had mellowed a bit after publicly humiliating me. And as I passed, she said, I guess I was a little rough on you today. It wasn't nice to do. I said, yes, ma'am, you were. I'm sorry, she said. I just can't believe how any intelligent person could be so narrow and bigoted as you are. I said, can you believe that I could be foolish enough, even though I'm educated, to come to the conviction that Jesus is at least one way to God? Yes, I can understand that, she said. I told her what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then I asked her, What could be more arrogant than a disciple of Jesus challenging his Lord's teaching on the way of salvation? I believe it because he said it. Yes, I see that, she said, but I still don't get it. How could you believe in such a narrow God? I said, okay, for the sake of argument, suppose that once upon a time there was nothing, no universe, The only thing in existence was God himself. So God created everything. And from all the creatures he made, he took one man and stamped him with his divine image. He blessed mankind and called them to mirror his righteousness. Yet soon after, they believed the serpent who gave them the promise that they would be as great as God. They were involved in cosmic revolt from the outset. Wouldn't God have been perfectly just to simply destroy all of mankind? She said, I suppose so. But he didn't do that, I continued. Instead, he gave them a promise of mercy and forgiveness. He promised a Messiah who would come and bear their sins for them. Later, he called the people out of darkness, out of slavery. They had become impotent before the mightiest ruler in the world, the Pharaoh. But God made them his people, and he gave them his law, the first of which is exclusive. You shall have no other gods before me. Later they bowed before the Baal and the Ashtoreth, and all the rest of the pagan deities of their day. But still, God didn't destroy them. Instead, he sent them his prophets and called them 
to come back to him as a father calls a wayward child to come back. But they greeted the prophets with stones and they killed them. Finally, to show his great love, God sent the eternal second person of the Trinity, his only begotten son, and let him take on the cloak of human flesh and live in the midst of this corruption and endure the punishment on the cross that the whole world deserved. He offered his only son to people who were hostile towards him. And the people killed his son. Nevertheless, God said that if you'll just put your trust in his son and honor him, then he will forgive every sin you've ever committed. He will give you everlasting life in a place where death is exiled, in a place where there is no night, no sin, no pain, no harm. He will give you joy and happiness such as no creature has ever contemplated. All you have to do is honor his son and him alone. I told all that to my teacher and then I asked her, after hearing all that, could you still stand before God and say, that's a very nice story, but what's the big deal about Jesus? You haven't done enough. Why didn't you give us 20 saviors. Why should it bother you whether I put my trust and devotion and admiration and adoration on Christ or on Muhammad? Would any of us ever dare to say before Almighty God, you haven't done enough? I want to study that. Isn't that good? This is what Peter's speech is about. The highest court of Israel sat in judgment concerning the apostles asking, by what power or by what name have you done this? And Peter tells them, it's Christ alone. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Are we prepared to die for this? This is the attitude of the apostles. This is the attitude of all Christians throughout church history. This was the conviction of the reformers. And there's a lot of reforming that needs to still continue, and it ought to be our conviction as well. Let's pray. Lord, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. But we know your promises to us. And in this we have great confidence and hope. Fill us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit so that we might be bold in sharing the good news of Jesus. Give us confidence in your word and in your work to heal the souls of those who need your mercy and grace. Give us opportunities, Lord, to speak. May you be glorified, we pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.